0: Chapter Twelve of Pioneers of France in the New World Part Two Champlain and His Associates This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pioneers of France in the New World by Francis Partman Part Two Samuel Champlain and His Associates Chapter Twelve The Imposter Vigneaux Sixteen twelve to sixteen thirteen The arrangements just indicated were a work of time. In the summer of 1612, Champlain was forced to forego his yearly voyage to New France. Nor, even in the following spring, were his labours finished and the rival interests brought to harmony. Meanwhile, incidents occurred destined to have no small influence on his movements. Three years before, after his second fight with the Iroquois, a young man of his company had boldly volunteered to join the Indians on their homeward journey, and winter among them champlain gladly assented and the following summer the adventurer returned another young man one Nicolas de Vignon, next offered himself and he also embarking in the algonquin canoes passed up the ottawa and was seen no more for a twelvemonth in sixteen twelve he reappeared in paris bringing a tale of wonders for says champlain he was the most impudent liar that has been seen for many a day He averred that at the sources of the Ottawa he found a great lake, that he had crossed it, and discovered a river flowing northward, that he had descended this river and reached the shores of the sea, that here he had seen the wreck of an English ship, whose crew, escaping to land, had been killed by the Indians, and that this sea was distant from Montreal only seventeen days by canoe. The clearness, consistency, and apparent simplicity of his story deceived Champlain, who had heard of a voyage of the English to the northern seas, coupled with rumours of his wreck and disaster, and was thus confirmed in his belief of Vignon's honesty. The Maréchal de Brissac, the President Janin, and other persons of eminence about the court, greatly interested by these dexterous fabrications, urged Champlain to follow up without delay a discovery which promised results so important, while he— with the Pacific, Japan, the Spice Islands, and India stretching in flattering vista before his fancy, entered with eagerness on the chase of this illusion. Early in the spring of 1613 the unwearied voyager crossed the Atlantic, and sailed up the St. Lawrence. On Monday, the 27th of May, he left the island of St. Helen, opposite Montreal, with four Frenchmen, one of whom was Nicolas de Vignard, and one Indian in two small canoes. They passed the swift current at St. Anne's, crossed the lake of two mountains, and advanced up the Ottawa till the rapids of Carillon and the Long checked their course. So dense and tangled was the forest that they were forced to remain in the bed of the river, trailing their canoes along the bank with cords, or pushing them by main force up the current. Champlain's foot slipped. He fell in the rapids, two boulders against which he braced himself, saving him from being swept down, while the cord of the canoe— twisted round his hand, nearly severed it. At length they reached smoother water, and presently met fifteen canoes of friendly Indians. Champlain gave them the most awkward of his Frenchmen, and took one of their number in return, and exchanged greatly to his profit. All day they plied their paddles, and when night came they made their camp-fire in the forest. He who now, when two centuries and a half are past, would see the evening bivouac of Champlain has but to encamp, with Indian guides, on the upper waters of the same Ottawa, or on the borders of some lonely river of New Brunswick or of Maine. Day dawned. The east glowed with tranquil fire, that pierced with eyes of flame the fir-trees, whose jagged tops stood drawn in black against the burning heaven. Beneath, the glossy river slept in shadow, or spread far and wide in sheets of burnished bronze, and the white moon, paling in the face of day, hung like a disk of silver in the western sky. Now a fervid light touched the dead tops of the hemlock, and creeping downward bathed the mossy beard of the patriarchal cedar, unstirred in the breathless air. Now a fiercer spark beamed from the east, and now, half risen on the sight, a dome of crimson fire, the sun blazed with floods of radiance across the awakened wilderness. The canoes were launched again, and the voyagers held their course. Soon the still surface was flecked with spots of foam, islets of froth floated by, tokens of some great convulsion. Then, on their left, the falling curtain of the rideau shone like a silver betwixt its bordering woods, and in front, white as a snowdrift, the cataracts of the Chaudière barred their way. They saw the unbridled river careering down its sheeted rocks, foaming in unfathomed chasms, wearying the solitude with the hoarse outcry of its agony and rage. On the brink of the rocky basin, where a plunging torrent boiled like a cauldron, and puffs of spray sprang out from its concussion like smoke from the throat of a cannon, Champlain's two Indians took their stand, and with a loud invocation threw tobacco into the foam, an offering to the local spirit, the manitou of the cataract. They shouldered their canoes over the rocks, and through the woods, then launched them again, and with toil and struggle made their amphibious way, pushing, dragging, lifting, paddling, shoving with poles, till when the evening sun poured its level rays across the quiet lake of the chaudiere they landed and made their camp on the verge of a woody island day by day brought a renewal of their toils hour by hour they moved prosperously up the long windings of the solitary stream and then in quick succession rapid followed rapid till the bed of the ottawa seemed a slope of foam now like a wall bristling at the top with woody islets the falls of the chats faced them with the sheer plunge of their sixteen cataracts now they glided beneath overhanging cliffs where seeing but unseen the crouched wildcat eyed them from the thicket now through the maze of water-girded rocks which the white cedar and the spruce clasped with serpent-like roots or among islands where old hemlocks darkened the water with deep green shadow here too the rock maple reared its verdant masses the beech its glistening leaves and clean smooth stem and behind stiff and sombre rose the balsam fir here in the tortuous channels the muskrat swam and plunged and the splashing wild duck dived beneath the alders or among the red and matted roots of thirsty water-willows aloft the white pine towered above a sea of verdure old fir-trees hoary and grim shaggy with pendent mosses leaned above the stream and beneath dead and submerged some fallen oak thrust from the current its bare bleached limbs like the skeleton of a drowned giant. In the weedy cove stood the moose, neck deep in water to escape the flies, wading shoreward, with glistening sides, as the canoes drew near, shaking his broad antlers and writhing his hideous nostril, as with clumsy trot he vanished in the woods. In these ancient wilds, to whose ever verdant antiquity the pyramids are young, and Nineveh a mushroom of yesterday, where the sage-wanderer of Odyssey could he have urged his pilgrimage so far, would have surveyed the same grand and stern monotony, the same dark sweep of melancholy woods. Here, while New England was a solitude, and the settlers of Virginia scarcely dared venture inland beyond the sound of a cannon-shot, Champlain was planting on shores and islands the emblems of his faith. Of the pioneers of the North American forests, his name stands foremost on the list— It was he who struck the deepest and boldest strokes into the heart of their pristine barbarism. At Chantilly, at Fontainebleau, Paris, in the cabinets of princes and of royalty itself, mingling with the proud vanities of the court, then lost from sight in the depths of Canada, the companion of savages, sharer of their toils, privations, and battles, more hardy, patient, and bold than they. Such for successive years were the alternations of this man's life. To follow on his trail once more. His Indians said that the rapids of the river above were impassable. Nicholas de Vignon affirmed the contrary, but from the first Vignon had been found always in the wrong. His aim seems to have been to involve his leader in difficulties and disgust him with a journey which must soon result in exposing the imposture which had occasioned it. Champlain took counsel of the Indians. The party left the river and entered the forest. We had a hard march, says Champlain. I carried for my share of the luggage three arquebuses, three paddles, my overcoat, and a few bagatelles. My men carried a little more than I did, and suffered more from the mosquitoes than from their loads. After we had passed four small ponds and advanced two leagues and a half, we were so tired that we could go no farther, having eaten nothing but a little roasted fish for nearly twenty-four hours. So we stopped in a pleasant place enough by the edge of a pond, and lighted a fire to drive off the mosquitoes, which plagued us beyond all description, and at the same time we set our nets to catch a few fish. On the next day they fared still worse, for their way was through a pine forest where a tornado had passed, tearing up the trees and piling one upon another in a vast windfall, where boughs, roots, and trunks were mixed in confusion. Sometimes they climbed over and sometimes crawled through these formidable barricades, till, after an exhausting march, they reached the banks of Muskrat Lake, by the edge of which was an Indian settlement. This neighborhood was the seat of the principal Indian population of the river, and as the canoes advanced, unwanted signs of human life could be seen on the borders of the lake. Here was a rough clearing. The trees had been burned. There was a rude and desolate gap in the sombre green of the pine forest. Dead trunks, blasted and black with fire, stood grimly upright amid the charred stumps and prostrate bodies of comrades half-consumed. In the intervening spaces the soil had been feebly scratched with hoes of wood or bone, and a crop of maize was growing, now some four inches high. The dwellings of these slovenly farmers, framed of poles covered with sheets of bark, were scattered here and there, singly or in groups, while their tenants were running to the shore in amazement. The chief, Nabachis, offered the calumet, then harangued the crowd. These white men must have fallen from the clouds. How else could they have reached us through the woods and rapids, which even we find it hard to pass? The French chief can do anything. All that we have heard of him must be true. And they hastened to regale the hungry visitors with a repast of fish. Champlain asked for guidance to the settlements above. It was readily granted. Escorted by his friendly hosts, he advanced beyond the foot of Muskrat Lake, and landing, saw the unaccustomed sight of pathways through the forest. They led to the clearings and cabins of a chief named Tessonat, who, amazed at the apparition of the white strangers, exclaimed that he must be in a dream. Next the voyagers crossed to the neighbouring island, then deeply wooded with pine, elm, and oak. Here were more desolate clearings, more rude cornfields, and bark-built cabins. Here, too, was a cemetery, which excited the wonder of Champlain, for the dead were better cared for than the living. Each grave was covered with a double row of pieces of wood, inclined like a roof till they crossed at the ridge, along which was laid a thick tablet of wood, meant apparently either to bind the whole together or to protect it from rain. At one end stood an upright tablet, or flattened post, rudely carved with an intended representation of the features of the deceased. If a chief, the head was adorned with a plume. If a warrior. There were figures near it of a shield, a lance, a war-club, and a bow and arrows, if a boy, of a small bow and one arrow, and if a woman or girl, of a kettle, an earthen pot, a wooden spoon, and a paddle. The whole was decorated with red and yellow paint, and beneath slept the departed, wrapped in a skin of robes, his earthly treasures about him, ready for use in the land of souls. Tessonat was to give a tabagi, or solemn feast, in honour of Champlain, and the chiefs and elders of the island were invited. Runners were sent to summon the guests from neighboring hamlets, and on the morrow Tessonat's squaws swept his cabin for the festivity. Then Champlain and his Frenchmen were seated on skins in the place of honor, and the naked guests appeared in quick succession, each with his wooden dish and spoon, and each ejaculating his guttural salute as he stooped at the low door. The spacious cabin was full, the congregated wisdom and prowess of the nation sat expectant on the bare earth. Each long bare arm thrust forth its dish in turn, as the host served out the banquet, in which, as courtesy enjoined, he himself was to have no share. First a mess of pounded maize, in which were boiled without salt, morsels of fish and dark scraps of meat. Then fish and flesh broiled on the embers, with a kettle of cold water from the river." Champlain, in wise distrust of Ottawa cookery, confined himself to the simpler and less doubtful viands. A few minutes, and all alike, had vanished. The kettles were empty. Then pipes were filled and touched with fire brought in by the squaws, while the young men who had stood thronged about the entrance now modestly withdrew, and the door was closed for counsel. First the pipes were passed to Champlain. Then, for a full half an hour, the assembly smoked in silence." At length, when the fitting time was come, he addressed them in a speech in which he declared that, moved by affection for them, he visited their country to see its richness and its beauty, and to aid them in their wars, and he now begged them to furnish him with four canoes and eight men, to convey him to the country of the Nipissings, a tribe dwelling northward on the lake which bears their name. His audience looked grave, for they were but cold and jealous friends of the Nipissings, For a time they discoursed in murmuring tones among themselves, all smoking, meanwhile, with redoubled vigour. Then Tassonat, chief of these forest republicans, rose and spoke in behalf of all. "'We always knew you for our best friend among the Frenchmen. We love you like our own children. But why did you break your word with us last year, when we all went down to meet you at Montreal, to give you presents and go with you to war? You were not there, but other Frenchmen were there who abused us. We will never go again.' As for the four canoes, you shall have them if you insist upon it, but it grieves us to think of the hardships you must endure. The Nipissings have weak hearts. They are good for nothing in war, but they kill us with charms, and they poison us. Therefore we are on bad terms with them. They will kill you too. Such was the pith of Tessonat's discourse, and at each clause the conclave responded in unison with an approving grunt. Champlain urged his petition, sought to relieve their tender scruples in his behalf, assured them that he was charm proof and that he feared no hardships at length he gained his point the canoes and men were promised and seeing himself as he thought on the highway to his phantom north sea he left his entertainers to their pipes and with a light heart issued from the close and smoky den to breathe the fresh air of the afternoon he visited the indian fields with their young crops of pumpkins beans and french peas the last a novelty obtained from the traders here thomas the interpreter soon joined him with a countenance of ill-nudes. In the absence of Champlain the assembly had reconsidered their consent. The canoes were denied. With a troubled mind he hastened again to the hall of council, and addressed the naked senate in terms better suited to his exigencies than to their dignity. I thought you were men. I thought you would hold fast to your word. But I find you children without truth. You call yourselves my friends, yet you break faith with me. Still, I would not incommode you, "'and if you cannot give me four canoes, two will serve.' "'The burden of the reply was, "'rocks, cataracts, and the wickedness of the Nipissings. "'We will not give you the canoes, "'because we are afraid of losing you,' they said. "'This young man,' rejoined Champlain, "'pointing to Vignau, who sat by his side, "'has been to their country, "'and did not find the road or the people so bad as you have said. "'Nicholas,' demanded Testonot, "'did you say that you have been to the Nipissings?' The impostor sat mute for a time, and then replied, "'Yes, I've been there.' Hereupon an outcry broke from the assembly, and they turned their eyes on him askance. "'As if,' says Champlain, "'they would have torn and eaten him.' "'You are a liar,' returned the unceremonious host. "'You know very well that you slept here among my children every night, and got up again every morning, and if you ever went to the Nipissings, it must have been when you were asleep. How can you be so impudent as to lie to your chief and so wicked as to risk his life among so many dangers. He ought to kill you with tortures worse than those with which we kill our enemies. Champlain urged him to reply, but he sat motionless and dumb. Then he led him from the cabin, and conjured him to declare if in truth he had seen this sea of the north. Vignon, with oaths, affirmed that all he had said was true. Returning to the council, Champlain repeated the impostor's story, how he had seen the sea, the wreck of an English ship, "'the heads of eighty Englishmen, and an English boy, prisoner among the Indians. "'At this an outcry rose louder than before, and the Indians turned in ire upon Vignon. "'You are a liar. Which way did you go? By what river? By what lakes? Who went with you?' Vignon had made a map of his travels, which Champlain now produced, "'desiring him to explain it to his questioners, but his assurance failed him, "'and he could not utter a word. Champlain was greatly agitated.' his heart was in the enterprise, his reputation was, in a measure, at stake, and now, when he thought his triumph so near, he shrank from believing himself the sport of an impudent impostor. The council broke up, the Indians displeased and moody, and he on his part full of anxieties and doubts. "'I called Vignon to me in presence of his companions,' he says. "'I told him that the time for deceiving me was ended, that he must tell me whether or not he had really seen the things he had told me of, that I had forgotten the past,' but that if he continued to mislead me, I would have him hanged without mercy. Vignau pondered for a moment, then fell on his knees, owned his treachery, and begged for forgiveness. Champlain broke into a rage, and unable, as he says, to endure the sight of him, ordered him from his presence, and sent the interpreter after him to make further examination. Vanity, the love of notoriety, and the hope of reward seemed to have been his inducements, for he had, in fact, spent a quiet winter in Tessonot's cabin, his nearest approach to the northern sea, and he had flattered himself that he might escape the necessity of guiding his commander to this pretended discovery. The Indians were somewhat exultant. "'Why did you not listen to chiefs and warriors, instead of believing the lies of this fellow?' And they counseled Champlain to have him killed at once, adding, "'Give him to us, and we promise you that he shall never lie again.' No motive remaining for farther advance, the party set out on their return, attended by a fleet of forty canoes bound to Montreal for trade. They passed the perilous rapids of the Calumet, and were one night encamped on an island, when an Indian, slumbering in an uneasy posture, was visited with a nightmare. He leaped up with a yell, screamed that somebody was killing him, and ran for refuge into the river. Instantly all his companions sprang to their feet, and, hearing in fancy the Iroquois war-whoop, took to the water, Splashing, diving, and wading up to their necks in the blindness of their fright, Champlain and his Frenchmen, roused at the noise, snatched their weapons and looked in vain for an enemy. The panic-stricken warriors, reassured at length, waited crestfallen on shore, and the whole ended in a lap at the Chaudiere. A contribution of tobacco was collected on a wooden platter, and, after a solemn harangue, was thrown to the guardian Manitou on the seventeenth of June. They approached Montreal where the assembled traders greeted them with discharges of small arms and cannon. Here, among the rest, was Champlain's lieutenant Du Parc with his men, who had amused their leisure with hunting, and were revelling in a sylvan abundance, while their baffled chief, with worry of mind, fatigue of body, and a lenten diet of half-cooked fish, was grievously fallen away in flesh and strength. He kept his word with de left the scoundrel unpunished, bad farewell to the Indians, and promising to rejoin them the next year, embarked in one of the trading ships for France. End of chapter 12